You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Wow, that was some introduction. I wasn't really prepared for that. Um, no, it really is a pleasure to be here. It's an honor, as Morgan said. My wife and I, we've been here a very long time, and you guys in this church just really mean the world to me. So it's, a, it's an honor. I thank the elders, Pastor Morgan, Galen, John, for the opportunity to do this. It's also, can I be transparent a little bit with you? It's also a little bit intimidating to be up here. And it, the reason is because, I don't know if y'all noticed, our teaching team is amazing. Aren't they awesome? In addition to Pastor Morgan, you had Barnabas, who shares with us, Pastor Brett, Pastor Rosalind, and of course, Dr. Green. Woo, hard, hard to follow. Well, I'm gonna share the bad news up front. This probably won't be quite that good. Um, I just, just wanna let you know. Now, in my profession, I work in investments and finance. In my world, we have something called the beaten raise. And if you're not familiar with the beaten raise, let me explain. So publicly traded companies at the beginning of almost every year will make a financial forecast or a projection to help investors or analysts know what they expect to earn, say, in the first quarter and then in the full year. Now, they don't set this where they think it's actually going to come in, right? They set it such that if things go according to plan, Maybe their first quarter revenues will be, I don't know, 1% above the forecast. And then they raise the full year guidance. And hopefully they do this throughout the year. It's this big orchestrated plan that even if things go exactly as they expect, it will create the impression that things are not only going great, they're better than expected. So if things go as well as I planned this morning, you'll all leave here thinking, wow, that was 1% better than I expected. <laughs> no. Now, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Luke in what is the third of a four-week excursus on the topic of money. Two weeks ago, we learned to live big and be rich towards God. Last week, we talked about trusting God in the area of our finances. And this week, we'll look at a short but no doubt confusing parable about an unjust steward in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called to him and said to him, what is this here I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. 
Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. Now, have you ever seen a movie, gotten to the very end, and wondered, what was all that about? It was really interesting. I was, I was paying attention, but I just couldn't follow it. For me, that movie was Tenet. Has anybody seen Tenet? All right, it's a very cool movie. There's tons going on, but between time going in different directions and parts of the dialogue that are actually too soft to actually hear, I found myself finishing the movie and running right to Wikipedia to read the plot summary to figure out what it is I had just watched. Now, for a lot of people, this parable can be that way. It's totally amazing. It's kind of peculiar in parts. What's it all about? Now, to answer that question, we must first look at what is different about this parable than many of the stories Jesus uses when he's teaching. Now, when we encounter Jesus teaching this way, more often than not, these parables, he's illuminating a spiritual truth by telling a story in which a key element or a character in the story is meant to represent God's character or us. We're supposed to see ourselves or God in the characters of the stories. These are primarily parables of comparison. For example, there's the parable of the lost sheep where God is portrayed as a shepherd who's chasing after his children that have gone astray. There's the parable of the good Samaritan where we're told how to love our neighbors. We learn that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. All parables of comparison. But this parable is different. This is a parable of contrast. It's intended to draw a distinction between how the world views and uses money and how believers are to relate to our earthly possessions. In doing this, we'll look at three contrasts that Jesus makes in the story and how these contrasts, if rightly understood, can help us from drifting astray in our approach to our finances. First contrast, two sons. The second, two currencies. And the third, two masters. Now, in retrospect, as I was watching Tenet, it would have been extraordinarily helpful to have a narrator with me of sorts. After every 10 minutes of characters fighting themselves and cars uncrashing and dialogue that's just too soft to hear, it would have been nice to have someone pause the movie and explain to me what I had just seen. So that's what I'm gonna attempt to do for you this morning. We're gonna go back through the parable in a little bit more detail and study it piece by piece. Verse one, now he was saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now this situation would be very familiar to a first century Jew, but it's a little foreign to modern readers. When we think of someone as a manager, maybe you think of a fast food restaurant where someone hires a manager to run the store on behalf of the owner. Sort of, right? Um, maybe you think of a property manager, someone who oversees or takes care of a home or an apartment complex. They have a duty to take care of the assets and oversee the income on behalf of the owner. Again, closer, but it doesn't fully capture what this position would have meant in those times. First, it's a position of very high status. 
It would have been understood that the steward enjoyed a very high standard of living, as well as respect and honor in his community. It was such a trusted position that the manager would have the same authority to act on behalf of the rich man, and the decisions and words would carry the same weight as the owner himself. Now, in our story, at some point, word gets back to the owner that the manager is squandering his possessions. This word squandering, if you look in the Greek, actually translates to the same word that we get diaspora or scattering. In the previous chapter, in Luke 15, it's translated as prodigal and the prodigal son. This parable could have just as easily been called the prodigal steward. So he was foolish and unwise with the assets and eventually it got back to the owner. Now the consequences of this mismanagement was that he was being fired. And before he was to lose his position, he first had to go back and take an account of his management. This word management, interestingly, in Greek is oikonomia, where we get our word economy. economy. All right. A few of you guys are passing along. All right. Now, in other words, go back and do an audit of everything you've done so that I'll know what you have done and what you have taken. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. Now, at this point, the manager knows he's in trouble and he needs a plan. And to understand the manager's response, we have to appreciate what being stripped of this position would mean for him and for his future. Just as the position of manager or steward is more than employee, being fired is more than just losing his income or losing his way to make a living. He'd also live his, lose his home, right? It was understood that a man in this position would generally live on the, man, the property that he managed on behalf of the owner. So now he has no place to live. He'd lose his status. His proximity to the wealthy owner would confer a certain level of status within his society. And finally, once word got around that he lost his position because of uh, mismanagement, he would lose his reputation in his community as well. So he's got to figure out what to do, right? How he's going to support himself. He realizes he's too soft to earn a living as a laborer. Um, he has a white-collar, cushy job, and now maybe he's even too old. Like, I get it. I have a white-collar job. I stare into a screen all day looking at red and green arrows. I get it. He admits he's too proud to beg, but he comes up with an idea for himself going forward. Now, interestingly, we find out he's too proud to beg, but he's not too proud to steal. So he decides <laughs> to go to his debtors who owe money to the rich man and work out a deal. He cuts a deal with each of them to eliminate some of the debt that they owe in order to ingratiate himself to them so that they would be obligated to help him once he was relieved of his duties. Picking back up in verse five. And he summoned each one of his master debtors and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, and write down, sit down quickly and write 50. And then said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, and write 80. So he goes to the first debtor, asks how much he owes, he says 100 measures of oil, and the steward quickly tells him to sit down, cut it to, to 50. He cuts 50% off his bill. He goes to the next one, says, how much do you owe? And he says 100 measures of wheat. The steward tells him to take 20% off of that bill. So just so we're all clear on what's going on here, he's not being a nice guy, he's not cutting his buddies a deal, he's not forgiving debt, no. He's embezzling money. He's literally stealing money from his employer to give it to the debtors to advantage himself, 
to secure his future. He's committing, we call, fraud. <laughs> and not a small fraud. I know we don't go around thinking in terms of measures of oil and wheat, but 100 measures of oil would be somewhere between 900 and 1,000 gallons of olive oil. This is the produce of about 150 olive trees. It would represent about three years' income for the average person at the time. 100 measures of wheat is about 1,000 bushels of wheat, the produce of about 100 acres, and this would represent about nine years' worth of labor for the average person. So in each case, 50 measures of oil, 20 measures of wheat converts to around a year and a half of salary. Now, in our terms, median income in the U.S., about $50,000, we can think that's about $75,000 that he's stealing for, from his owner for each of the debtors. It's not Bernie Madoff-level embezzlement, but it's, it's real money, right? Now, if your mind works like mine does, or it wanders like mine does, or is maybe broken like mine is, you may be thinking, well, I wonder how much all that stuff would cost today. Well, wonder no more, because I've done the math for you. No extra charge, by the way. 500 gallons of olive oil today wouldn't cost you $75,000. It's only about $21,600. And the equivalent of 20, uh, sorry, 200 bushels of wheat, which translates into about 8,500 pounds of all-purpose flour. That'll only set you back about $6,300. Now, for you fact-checkers out there, those are HEB private label prices as of... <laughs> The evening of November 6th, your mileage may vary. Now, if you're curious what this has to do with the rest of the message, I can assure you, nothing. <laughs> but you can impress your friends at parties. And since we're all looking for a little bit of good economic news these days, if you think about over the last 2,000 years, inflation is actually not all that bad. <laughs> Nevertheless, at the time, it was a lot of money, and especially in an honor culture like this, these deals with the debtors would have put him in a position to call on those favors later in the future when he needed to. But, like is the case with many parables and Christopher Nolan movies, a twist is coming. Verse 8, and the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now at this point, the owner doesn't try to have him arrested or executed. He doesn't try to sue him to recover what he's lost. He doesn't even chastise him or attempt to alert the community to his dishonesty and deceit. No, he praises him. He commends the dishonest steward for his shrewdness. And now it's important to pause here and look at that word shrewd because it can have the connotation of being clever, cunning, even tricky. And that's not at all what's being communicated here. Elsewhere in the Bible, this is translated as wise, prudent, sensible. In Matthew 7, where it says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. It's the same word. So everywhere else in the Bible, this is translated as a virtue. But you may say, how can that be? How could someone who had just been conned out of a huge sum of money by someone he trusted intimately describe him as prudent or even wise? Well, the answer lies in the first of our contrasts, the contrast of two sons. Now, the passage said the first son is a son of this age. 
Obviously not just talking about males. Some translations call them children of this world. Now the children of this world are unbelievers, those who don't know God. Whereas the sons or children of light represent those who know God and who are serving him. And one distinction this passage makes between the two appears to be the shrewdness by which they relate to one another when it comes to money. Now I believe the owner recognized himself in the steward. Chances are if he were put in the same position, he would have made the same decision. One son of this age acknowledging the worldly wisdom in another son of this age. On some level, the owner just had to step back and say, you got me, well done. Now it's one thing for the owner to say this, right? But as Jesus transitions into the teaching and the application of the parable, he goes on to say to the sons of light, for the sons of this age are more shrewd and make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness. Now is Jesus saying here, unbelievers are wiser than you are when it comes to money, so do as they do. Acquire wealth unrighteously and use it just like the unjust steward did to curry favor for yourselves. It could certainly appear this way, but then again, that's if you read it through the lens of comparison. Remember, this is a parable primarily of contrasts. It's also critical to understand that the phrase Jesus uses here, the wealth of unrighteousness, is not specifically referring to wealth attained in an underhanded or unethical way. Rather, it's a term just to represent all of our earthly possessions. Elsewhere, the Bible uses the peculiar term mammon, right? And we know that mammon is not inherently evil, but it does have this unique potential to corrupt, to deceive us if we succumb. If you, like the sons of this age, believe that this world is all there is, at the end of all of this, nothing carries forward, then there actually is no higher purpose to how we handle our money. And in that sense, providing for your future by whatever means necessary is wise and a prudent thing to do. In the wisdom of this world, this will all come to an end one day anyway. Should I not just manipulate it to meet all of my material needs? Oh, but for those of us, who are believers, the answer hangs on this last line. So that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Now here's Jesus has taken our earthly possessions and connecting them directly to eternity. And he's doing this by reminding us that these earthly things will fail. Our wealth will come to an end and all that we will have to show is what we've done with them to advance his kingdom. Jesus continues in 10. He was faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful to use in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Here we're confronted with a second contrast, the contrast of two currencies. On one hand, we have the currency of unrighteous wealth, and Jesus is contrasting that with the currency of true riches. Both of these currencies are valuable in a way, but one is temporary, destined to fail. The other is glorious and eternal. But like the currencies familiar to us in our global economy, there is an exchange rate of sorts. Like if you go on vacation to Canada, 
you can convert some of your US dollars into Canadian dollars at a rate of about 1.3 Canadian dollars per US dollar. Let's say you go to Japan, you can convert some of your US dollars into Japanese yen at a rate of about 140 yen per dollar. Or, like our friends, if you and your whole family get up and leave Mosaic and move to Italy, <laughs> you can convert all of your dollars to euros at a rate of one to one. And I'm not jealous, not even, not even a little. Unfortunately, unlike euros and yen, you can't convert your mammon into true riches at the airport or at the bank. Now this, this conversion is not a transaction, it's a process. God's calling each of us to be faithful and selfless in how we manage his assets, even in the little things. He expects us to use what he's entrusted to us to demonstrate God's love to those of us, to those around us, to bless those in our lives, to invest in his kingdom. Now you remember back to a very similar charge in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus teaches us, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. These are treasures that do not fail, that carry on to our eternal reward. No, our money isn't converted into true riches so much as it's laundered into true riches through faithfulness and generosity, acknowledging that God is the true owner of everything that we possess. Now, I've been around a long time, as Morgan so eloquently put, um, and I've been doing this long enough to hear every manner of bad teaching when it comes to money. Not in this church. Um, but many are tempted to read this passage and interpret it as those who are generous and faithful are guaranteed to become materially wealthy in this life. And if we do this, I would suggest, at best we're mistaking the entire point of this passage. And at worst, we're making God an accomplice in our shrewd plan to enrich ourselves for our own selfish desires. And God loves you too much for that. He has a better exchange rate in mind. Instead, we're invited to submit that which is little, that which is unrighteous, that which is another, in exchange for that which is much, that which is true riches, that which is your own, that never fails. Scottish minister Alexander McLaren said it this way, we have the thought that there are two kinds of valuable things in the world, a lower and a higher that men may be very rich in regard to one and very poor in regard to the other. More than that, the noblest use of the lower kind of possessions is to secure the possession of the highest. And so he teaches us the meaning of life and of all that we have. Now, I love this. Did you catch what he's saying there at the end? This exchange of the lower for the higher is not just a model for how we think about money. He says, it's the meaning of life itself. And if you think about it, there is nothing meaningful in your life or in mine that in some level can't be reduced to the sacrifice of one thing for a higher good. Athletes, they train and practice to prepare their bodies to perform in the game when it matters. You go to school to prepare yourself for a meaningful and fruitful career. You devote your love and attention to a spouse or in service of your children you volunteer at MKIDS to equip the next generation. Right. Or maybe you don't. 
but you certainly should. Thank you. And there on the cross of Calvary, Jesus offers us the greatest exchange of all, his, our death that we so rightfully deserve for his life, our sin for his righteousness, our worship for his glory, our shame for his mercy, and yes, our possessions for his true riches. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. This doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to handle our wealth wisely, to make prudent decisions, to provide for ourselves, our futures, and for those whom we're responsible. Over the last nine weeks, I have been facilitating Dave Ramsey's FPU class to encourage people to do just that, to save money, get out of debt, and create a plan for their financial resources. Trust me, I love this stuff. I live for it. To me, the whole world is an Excel spreadsheet with 20 tabs. I love it. It's another Excel nerd out there. I love it. And I'll see the rest of you after the service. Um, but in the end, it all fails. Our worldly mammon is just a dim representation of the true riches of God. Finally, we're presented with a third contrast, the contrast of two masters. Now, Jesus concludes the teaching by summing up everything in a single sobering reminder. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. When it comes to the issue of money and God, we can't serve both. And don't be mistaken, we will worship something. Now skeptics often make this kind of humorous claim that all babies are atheists. In an attempt to demonstrate that the natural default for mankind is a state of unbelief. But empirical evidence always points the opposite direction. In fact, psychological studies have confirmed that even small children have an innate belief that the world around them was created with a purpose. You and I, we are hardwired to worship. We will worship something and we will serve a master. We will serve the infinite God who promises security, acceptance, significance. Or we'll be like the sons of this age who settle for a lower kind of possession that promises all the same things, security, acceptance, significance, but fails in the end. I'd like to share a bit of a cautionary tale, if I may, to illustrate this. I had a friend a while back. Um, for the purpose of this story, we're gonna call him Jack. Now, Jack and I were at UT at the same time, and we have been roommates for a little bit. Jack had a full ride to play football at the University of Texas, got on the field a few snaps before giving up football his sophomore year, and that's how he ended up living with us. Now, Jack had a lot going for him despite leaving football. Uh, he was from a small town in West Texas, brought up in a Christian home, would have said that he was a believer. Uh, he was dating and ultimately married a UT cheerleader, did pretty well in school, and had his sights set on becoming a physician. Well, despite being a pretty sharp guy, Jack also seemed to have let's say, questionable judgment. Um, for example, when we would go to CeCe's Pizza, which we did a lot because we were in college, he was always super excited, not because it was $3.99 all-you-could-eat pizza. He actually liked the food. Uh, and I can promise you at 6'4", 235, CeCe's did not make a dime on this guy. But aside from questionable taste in pizza, um, he was one of these guys that just always was working an angle, always had 
a scheme, an idea to cut corners, to, to get ahead. Now, ultimately, he got into medical school and became an orthopedic surgeon. And from some sort of mismanagement, not 100% sure, he was forced to close his surgical practice. Now, Jack, facing the reality of losing his income and his status, his reputation, he had an idea. Jack's idea to provide for himself and likely a host of really poor decisions thereafter have led him to about, I think he's in year two of a 10-year federal prison sentence for Medicare fraud. Jack has four sons that he will not see graduate from high school. Like the Pharisees, Jack scoffed. He thought he could serve both God and mammon. Now, as we close, I'd just like to offer you a brief window into how this message plays itself out in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, perhaps my wife and I were, were odd. One of our favorite experiences every January is receiving our annual giving statements in the mail, especially our giving record from Mosaic. Now, it's not unusual for Stacy to call me crying when she opens the envelope. It's powerful and it's meaningful for a number of reasons. First, it's a reminder of the investments I'm making and the return on those investments. My first Sunday in what would become Mosaic Church of Austin was with about 35 to 40 people in a preschool cafeteria. Now I have the privilege of having seen through 20 years um, <laughs> so many families come and go through those doors, lives change, families healed, decisions made for Jesus. And that way, for me, it's kind of like opening up my statements for a 401k. It's my eternal retirement plan, true riches laid up in heaven. Second, I love it because I can divide by 10% just as easily as I can multiply by 10%. Our statements aren't ultimately a record of our faithfulness to God, but it's God's faithfulness to us. And he has been unreasonably generous to us. And there it is in black and white, a reminder. And finally, and probably most importantly, we know that those statements, they're the antidote to my heart's natural inclination to worship money. Perhaps I'm alone in this. I'll make a confession. I like things. I like nice things, as it turns out. I like expensive things. I really like expensive food. That is my advice. And I need to be continually reminded. The chief competitor for my heart, and I would argue for your heart, isn't the devil. The choice isn't between God and Satan, it's between God and money. And as the old saying goes, money is a great servant, but it's a brutal master. And like my friend Jack, we all have a choice. We can choose the path of the sons of this age who use the resources according to shrewdness and wisdom of this world with hearts fixated on the promises of worldly wealth in service of a master who will ultimately fail. Or we can choose the way of the sons of light and acknowledge that the worldly wealth we are entrusted to is to be managed, not just wisely, but faithfully and generously according to the purposes of a good and loving master who longs to give true riches and abundant and eternal life to his children. With that, I'll close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you that as followers of you, as children of light, we are to be set apart to serve you with all we have and all we are. Lord, spare us for the temptation to serve earthly masters, that we may lay up true riches in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. 
For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.